If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah is laying out a messianic future for Israel. Her Messiah is coming. The word Messiah means anointed one or chosen one. Now, certain names, as we look at God's word, certain names are Jewish. Other names are not Jewish. Cyrus is not a Jewish name. Uh, Yet there will be a Messiah of God named Cyrus. And I think this would have been shocking to the Israelites to hear. Uh, as we look at the text this morning, uh, you might recall in, we're in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 through 20, we saw last week how God compared those who manufacture and make idols and then fall down to idols with the true God. That comparison is going to continue today in verse 24, where God says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I formed you. So this is going to be a contrast to idols. And God is going to talk about what he does for them in verses 21 and 22. And then we have an interlude in verse number 23, a a time where creation rejoices in God. There will be another interlude in chapter 45, verse number 8. We have a long text this morning that we're going to read, not a long message, not a long sermon, but a very long text that we're going to read here in just a moment. But there are interludes in verse 25 and then in chapter 45 and verse 8. I also want to call your attention to verses 24 through 28 in in chapter 44. Verses 24 through 28 are one sentence. Uh, There is one verb that that, that applies here, I am the Lord, in verse number 24. And then it is followed by a bunch of participles and dependent clauses. Clauses that contain a verb, but they're dependent. They don't stand on their own. And... um, And so when I read verses 24 through 28, I'm going to change all of the, what looks like verbs, into ing words where they're participles. So you'll notice me doing that, and I'm doing that because it is one sentence, and it leads to a climax in verse number 28, where it says, uh, God is saying of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Cyrus, a Gentile name, he is God's shepherd. And then, of course, again, the punchline in verse, chapter 45, verse number 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, his Messiah, his Messiah, to Cyrus. That, again, to the Jews, I think that would have just popped under ears. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, he just as well been named Vladimir, okay? Um, uh, you know, it's it, it just not a Jewish name there. And, um, and so, and then we'll continue. We're going to read all the way through chapter 45 and verse 13. Again, I caution you, a long passage, not a long sermon today, God willing. All right, uh, let's begin here. We're going to start in verse number 24. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, making all things, stretching out alone, stretching out the heavens, spreading out the earth 
by myself, frustrating the signs of liars, making fools of diviners, turning wise men back and making their knowledge foolish, confirming the word of his servant and fulfilling the counsel of his messengers, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins, saying to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, saying of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or... Your work has no handles. Woe to him who, has, who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up. Speaking of Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you, the Lord of hosts, the God of all gods, the God of creation, I pray that we'd recognize who you are. You are the author of peace. You are the author of calamity. Uh, Father, you do not hide. You are not afraid to declare who you are. But Father, we also see that we need to be very careful about rising up against you in judgment, that we are clay pots among clay pots. And uh, Father, you do as you please. 
We thank you that you have revealed yourself here in your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to Israel and to Cyrus over a century before he even lived. And God, I pray that you would help us to reverence the fact that you lay out history before it happens. And Father, you have a plan. And the day is coming when righteousness and salvation will rain down from heaven. We thank you, God. We trust you. I pray that your word would just give us a proper perspective on you today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study, uh, after God's critique of mankind's worthless idols in verses 1 through 20, God reminds Israel that he created them, that he works for them. Uh, Again, in chapter 44, verse 24, or 21, uh, the, uh, the word says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like, with, uh, like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Do you see there's two verbs there for Israel? Remember in verse 21 and return in verse 22. That word return, it's the word repent in the Old Testament. It's repent from your idolatry, repent from going the way of the world. Uh, you've, you've fallen in love with these false idols that God has been talking about. You've bought into them. You've bought into your culture. You need to repent. You need to return to me. And so God commands them that. And, and then he, he talks about what he has done for them. Unlike the manufacturers of idols who have to make them and then prop them up, God says, I formed you, uh, and you will not be forgotten. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. Now, one of the applications that we want to have here is, is to remind ourselves that like Israel, we buy into our culture. And, and, and we have an affinity for our culture. And our culture has a pluralistic attitude that, that all religions are good, that all faiths are, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're a person of faith. Or you could be a person of no faith. You can be an atheist. And this too must be respected in our culture and, and, and given equal standing with Christ and Christianity. That is our culture. That is the ground rules by which we go out day to day at our workplace and we operate. And, and God would say that we need, uh, while we go out into the world and we feel like, well, we're wrong as Christians to be so exclusive, to say that we have an exclusive claim on truth, uh, God would say, no, 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 you need to repent and you need to remember, I alone made this world. Uh, you need to return to me, and you need to be more exclusive in your attitude, in your heart, and in the way you conduct yourself in this world. And, and so God is calling Israel to return to him. And uh, then we have this beautiful uh, interlude. There's two interludes in verse 23. Oh, it says, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Now, this is talking like it's a done deal. This is being written over a century before Israel is in captivity and delivered by Cyrus. Uh, And so there is a whole history that's going to be lived out where they are going to go into captivity and then they're going to be delivered from captivity. And, And the Word of God treats it as if it's a done deal. What is also done for Israel, is that their sins have been blotted out. In verse number 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, your sins like mist. 
I don't know about you and your transgressions, but my transgressions are quite concrete. <laughs> they, they, they tend to haunt me for life. Uh, there are certain sins that I have sinned in my past that will wake me up at night. Uh, but God has turned them into a mist. God has forgiven sin. This is accomplished uh, not for all, every individual in Israel, uh, but for Israelites who trust the Messiah, Israelites who believe on Jesus Christ. And so this interlude, just sing, O heavens, the Lord has done it. He has redeemed. I hope that's your testimony as well. God cites several examples of his divine sovereignty, and he foretells of Cyrus becoming his deliverer of Israel. And that's really the, the uh, verses 24 through 28, one sentence, very poetic, and the punchline is Cyrus. The punchline is Cyrus here. Look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, who made all things, and that should be making all things, stretching out the heavens alone, uh, spreading out the earth by myself. When God says, I did this alone, this is very contrary to the view in antiquities where there would be a pantheon of gods and, and they would be maybe be at odds a little bit with each other. There'd be a little bit of competition. Or at the very least, you had this idea of a, of a good God and a bad God. And they were at odds with each other. And, and the, so the bad things in this world, the bad God created, and the good things in this world, the good God created. And so anything bad in your life, you wouldn't blame the true God. You wouldn't assign uh, responsibility, I should say, to the true God. You would blame the bad God. And we're going to see that that is not the case at all. Uh, God said, the calamity in your life, I authored that. Uh, he doesn't hide from the truth here. Uh, so uh, who alone, uh, alone stretching out the heavens, spreading out the earth by myself, Verse 25, frustrating the, sins, uh, the, the, the signs of liars. Uh, there that would be false prophets with their signs and wonders. Making fools of diviners. Turning wise men back and making their knowledge foolish. Confirming the word of his servant. And I would take that to be the, the prophets as well as fulfilling the counsel of his messengers. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built. Now, this is at a time when Jerusalem is about to go into exile in Babylon for 70 years. But, but this is building up toward the end of the poem here. Uh, I will raise up the ruins. Verse 27, saying to the deep, be dry. That could be a reference to the Red Sea and the Jordan when they dried up. Or it could be a reference to how God is delivering them out of Babylon. I will dry up your rivers. Saying of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. And what is that purpose? What is the plan for Cyrus? Verse number 28, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. By naming Cyrus by name, over a hundred years before the man is even born, brings up some debate among theologians. Some say this is proof that Isaiah did not write this, that Isaiah was dead and gone. God raised up another prophet, and whoever redacted, whoever assembled a bunch of prophecies, used Isaiah, and he's the main contributor, but there's other prophets as well. Another theory is that Isaiah, yes, he wrote this, but he didn't name Cyrus by name, that there was a more generic name in there, a, a, a placeholder. And then when Cyrus was born and, and when he existed, when he lived, that then the name Cyrus was put in there. 
I don't buy either one of those. And I, I think that God named Cyrus by name over 100 years before the man existed. And, and if you look at chapter 20, uh, 45, chapter 45, verse number 3, it, 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 God makes a big deal of this. And again, remember the context when God was arguing with idols and idolatry? And remember how he invited them saying, hey, you tell the future. You tell the things that will take place. You tell the things that are going to transpire. And then when they've transpired, we will check the record, right? And because and God's like, I will still be here. And, and we will check the record and see who is telling the truth. And so in that context, we have the name of Cyrus. And then when you look at chapter 45, verse 3, at the end of the verse, it says um, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, I call your name. I name you, though you do not know me. And so God is making a big deal of the fact that, hey, I am naming this guy before he even exists, someone who does not follow me. Josephus, uh, let me just read what one author wrote about Josephus. He's the Jewish historian. And, uh, and, and he would have lived uh, centuries later, but we're millennia later. So I would trust his perspective more than our own. Uh, Joseph uh, indeed says that Cyrus came to know of his destiny with respect to the Jewish people. And this is a quote from Josephus. By reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple, end quote. According to, accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. And uh, then this author just said, is it not implausible, uh, uh, is it not implausible that a highly placed Jewish official, such as the book of Daniel represents Daniel to have been, could have drawn the emperor's attention to these prophecies? Uh, but without further evidence, we cannot be certain. So in other words, was there a Daniel whispering in Cyrus's ear, hey, you need to see this. This is our writing from over a century ago. This is our prophet Isaiah. He names you by name. And he makes a point that he named you by name, that these are the things that you will do. Um, one other note that I would have is this. Cyrus, this Cyrus is Cyrus number two. And Cyrus number one was not his daddy. Cyrus number one was his grandpa. Okay, so now, here you are, you're Israel, you're in exile, you have the writings of Isaiah, and Isaiah says, Cyrus is going to be my shepherd, Cyrus is going to deliver you, Cyrus is going to rebuild Jerusalem, and here's Cyrus one. And you're like, the word of God, oh man, the signs of the time. It's going to happen, it's going to happen right now, we've got Cyrus on the throne and God's like, ah, no, actually, you're going to die. And two generations later, this is going to take place with Cyrus too, right? And, and I would just say that, that might be a good word of caution for Christians today. Whenever we read the book of Revelation, and we're going to the book of Revelation after we're done in Isaiah, uh, that uh, we want to be very careful about naming all. This is the end. This is it. We know it. Because uh, these guys had the name, Cyrus. And there he is on the throne, Cyrus I. Eh, not so much. So, anyway, um, just a warning. In verse 28, 
God gives the outline of Cyrus' commission, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Listen to Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Jeremiah also prophesied of this, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Ezra 1 verse 2 seems to support Josephus' account that Cyrus was aware of the prophecies concerning him and aware that God had done something in and around his life. So God calls Cyrus his Messiah at the beginning of chapter 45, his anointed one, his Messiah, um, who will break down the nations and all of this for God's people Israel. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 8 here. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Now, that could be God is shaking his hand or God is holding his hand. To subdue the nations before him, to loose the belt of kings. Uh, What's it mean to loose the belt of kings? Uh, uh, When you go to battle, you're to gird up your loins like a man, and and that might be the way you you attire yourself. Well, the the, the girding is going to come loose for these kings under King Cyrus. Uh, God's going to make that happen. That to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. Here's the purpose, that you may know that it is I, the Lord. So, Whatever kind of a victory and whatever kind of reward Cyrus was going to enjoy, it was going to be uncanny. It was going to be unbelievable. And there would have to be an explanation for it. And God wants Cyrus to know that it was me doing this. The God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me. There it is again. We do not see this man as one of the elect. We do not see him as one of the, the, uh, the, 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 the people of the covenant. Verse number six, here's another purpose. That people may know from the rising of the sun, that would be the east, and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. And here we get into some really dangerous territory. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then we have this interlude. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So God calls Cyrus his Messiah, his anointed. And that, if that sets off warning bells in your mind, just imagine if you were Jewish. This would be quite jolting to Israel. God makes it clear that Cyrus does not even know him. Twice he mentions this. 
So we aren't saying that Cyrus is a member of the covenant community. We are saying that God conscripts whoever he wants to conscript to do his will. Isaiah is also taking his time, chapter by chapter, to unfold his prophecy concerning God's servant, God's ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is to come. In chapter 42, God started this theme, Behold my servant. And there... Is he talking about the ultimate Messiah or is he talking about Israel? It's very clear that at least at some points he's talking about his people, Israel. So he's developing this theme of his servant, his Messiah, ultimately getting to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Cyrus, we'd understand to be a typology of Jesus, a forerunner, if you will, a foreshadower of Jesus. Uh, somebody who would deliver Israel in a certain way and we would learn something about our Messiah through God working through this unsaved pagan man. In chapter 45, verse 5, God establishes this truth firmly that he alone is God and there is no other. Uh, Look at verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. And, and, and this, again, is contrary. People are thinking, oh, there's a pantheon of these gods, and they squabble, and they disagree, or at least there's a good God and a bad God that explains good and evil, uh, nice things and bad things in life. And God said, no, 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 there's one. And, 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 and you might say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean about all the bad stuff going on in the world? Because I don't know if I like a God who allows and even purposes bad stuff in the world. Well, look at verse 7. I form light and create darkness. Now, in the book of Genesis, darkness did not have any connotation of evil when though everything was dark. It was just the fact that it was dark. But I think here it's talking about darkness in terms of the bad things, that, that God creates some bad things. And, and if we want clarity, the next phrase, I make well-being or peace and create calamity. So God is saying that, that darkness and calamity don't come from some bad God. That comes from me. And you may remember that when Adam and Eve were about to sin, God warned them that if you, if you disobey me, you will bring a curse of sin, a curse of death on this world. And God caused the ground to bring forth thorns. God caused pain in childbirth. So when it comes to the bad things in life, God doesn't go into ninja mode and hide in a corner without moving, hoping you don't notice him you know, shuffling for a door to make his escape and, you know, leave the scene. No, God says, no, I did that. If you want to understand calamity, you need to position calamity within me because there is one God. Now, God created Satan, Satan tempted man, but Satan is not God. He is not a deity. There is one who purposed the existence of Satan who gave his son Jesus before the foundations of the world to be slain for our sins. These are fearful truths that we need to look at God and understand that he does not hide from darkness. He does not hide from calamity. And and when you face these things, you need to reconcile them in him. Verse 8 speaks of righteousness and salvation showering down. This is where, you know, History is going somewhere. In verse 8, it, it, it's an interlude. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. This is where things are going. 
And as you position the calamities of life and the darkness of life today, you need to see where we are going. The God who created all is taking us somewhere. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So yes, Cyrus does play a role in history, in salvation history. But Jesus is the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Savior. And, and so Cyrus's point in salvation history is he is rebuilding the city uh, of Jerusalem. The, the, the center of his people, where all of the activity of, of Israel centers around Jerusalem, Cyrus is bringing that back together. Uh, Jerusalem is also the place where Jesus will minister and where Jesus will die for the sins of mankind. Cyrus is bringing that back together. He has his role in salvation history. And it is our God who is orchestrating everything, even as Cyrus doesn't even know God. So what if you do not think so highly of a God who purposes good and evil? Is God right to have created a world in which he knew sin would exist? Maybe that repels you. Maybe that makes you hate God. If it does, there's a woe for you. And when we see the word woe, that, that, that's like saying, you know what, there's no hope. <laughs> it would have been better if you had never been born. A woe is pronounced upon any Jews who read this prophecy and judge God's use of a pagan king and calamity to be distasteful, to be unacceptable. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. In other words, you're just one more clay pot. In the potter's collection, you're kind of being told your place here. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. What are you doing with me here? There's no handles, idiot. (laughs) The pot doesn't speak that way, has no right to speak that way to the potter. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? The the picture there is a father is conceiving and the conceived seed says, what are you doing? I didn't ask to be born. What are you making here, dad? You know. Uh, That type of thing does not happen. Or to a woman, with uh, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me things to come. Uh, Again, there's that challenge. Ask me things to come. And that's why I believe he is naming Cyrus by name. This is not an anthology of multiple uh, prophets. This is Isaiah naming Cyrus over a century. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, ain't no way. (laughs) It's not going to happen. I made earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded their host. That would be the stars, I believe. I have stirred him up. This is referring to Cyrus again. I have stirred him up in righteousness And I will make, and I don't believe that that means Cyrus is righteous. I believe God's saying, I am righteous. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward. That's an important point. Not for price or reward. That is so different than antiquities. Typically, you had a suzerain, higher king, and a vassal king. And the vassal would pay the suzerain, and then the suzerain would allow them to rebuild the city. God said, no, 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 he's going to rebuild the city, and he's not going to be reimbursed for it. It's like build a wall, make Mexico pay for it. You remember that? Uh, this, is, um, uh, this is actually, he's going to pay to build the wall, and he's not going to be reimbursed for it. Cyrus is going to do all of this. 
I'm going to move his heart to do this, says the Lord of hosts. You have to acknowledge that this prophecy would be a turnoff to a lot of Jews. Um, it, it, it culminates in the argument in verse 13 that God can raise up Cyrus, pave the way for him as a king, use him to free his people without reimbursement. Why? Because God owns it all. But a Gentile Messiah, God anointing a Gentile, we Israel are going to be delivered by a pagan in fact, we, Israel, are going to be exiled. It hasn't happened yet. The exile to Babylon has not yet happened. And so maybe you as a Jew at this point have a lot of problems with God. God is abandoning you to the Babylonians, and then God's going to deliver you with another Gentile king. And you just don't like the way God operates things. God gives the example of the potter in that case. You have a chunk of clay. You can make it into a flower pot or you can make it into a potty pot. Something you used to go to the bathroom in, a, a bedside, a chamber pot is what they used to call them. It's your clay. Now, if I'm the clay, I know what kind of pot I would rather be, right? If, I, if I'm the clay and if I have a conscience, I know what kind of... But, but the reality is the clay has no choice. You're going to spin your wheel and you're going to form that clay into whatever you want, whatever you desire, such as Israel, such as you, such as me. We are clay pots among clay pots. We are God's creation. This can cause you to fear God, which I think is a good response, or it can cause you to hate God. A God who would do this, uh, I hate him. Is the, that, that's the response of, of somebody who, who is uh, estranged from God. Turn to Romans chapter 9, verse number 14, if you would, for just a moment. If you have your Bibles uh, open, turn to Romans chapter 9, verse number 14, because this is a point of struggle, and it's logical that people would struggle with this, the sovereignty of God for good and for bad. And uh, as we look at it, in Romans 9, verse 14, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends. Now that word depends is important. We'll come back to it. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now this is talking about the, the fundamental relationship that you have with God, and it depends ultimately not on human will, but on God. That word depends, I like to use the word essence, and I like to distinguish essence from necessary. The essence of salvation is God's will, God's choosing you. Is your will necessary, your free will? Do you have to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved? The Bible is clear. You need to make that decision for yourself. You need to trust Jesus Christ. You need to exercise your human will. But the essence of this transaction is God choosing in eternity past to call you to himself, to give you the spirit to give you spiritual understanding because the things of God cannot be understood by the natural man. God has to move first. And so it really, the, I like to use this for essence and necessary. The essence of salvation is God's will. My will is necessary. When I go to the dentist, the essence of what's taking place in the dentist chair is what the dentist does. 
but my will is necessary too, right? I have to lay down and, and, and allow him to work in my mouth. So, but the essence is what his work. This is salvation. The essence of it is God. So in, in Romans chapter 9, verse number 16, we have this statement. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then it gives the example of Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What did Pharaoh do? What did he do multiple times? He hardened his heart against God. He rejected God. And God said, this is why I raised you up, that you would harden your heart and that I would be glorified in you. Okay, and, and so we we're getting to a logical problem here with God because uh, look at where Paul goes with this. Um, it, it says, for this very purpose I raise you up that I might show my power in you. Verse number 18. So then he, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You then will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Rhetorical question, the answer is? Nobody. Nobody can resist the will of God. And so here we are looking at this guy, Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh was raised up for the purpose of rejecting God. Pharaoh hardened his heart in some passages. In other passages, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is Pharaoh's entire purpose for being created was that God would be glorified in him rejecting God. So now how does God find fault with Pharaoh? Who can resist God's creative plan? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if you were a skeptic and you had a mind to set the table with all of the tension and ask God a question, this is your question. This is where you paint God into a corner. And you say, ha, I got you. Answer that. Shall we see what the answer is? Let's see what the answer is. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? We didn't get an answer there, did we? We got a shut your mouth kind of an answer. Clay pot. You do not answer back to the molder who fashions you and fashions the universe. You think you're clever? Do you think somebody really wants your opinion and your approval on the God of the universe? Think again. His approval, his opinion is all that matters in the end. Who are you to answer back to God? You have a clever question. You've got all of the tension. You think you've got God painted into a corner. And God said, you're not going there. You are not going there. Verse 21, has any, here's the same illustration. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, the flower pot, and another for dishonorable use, the chamber pot? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us among whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is not a popular answer for mankind. God's word brings up all the questions that all the critics would ask if they were smart enough to have framed it in this fashion. God sets the table with tension. Pharaoh hardened his heart, yet, yet God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God decreed that Pharaoh would exist for this purpose. 
Who can resist God? No one. So how can God then find fault? Good question, except that you have no right to ask it. God does not need your approval. No one is looking to you to say, oh yeah, God checks out. He's okay. There is no authority beyond God to whom we can appeal. God does not even exist by democratic consent. You exist by his royal decree. He is a monarch. And if you cannot fall in line and get into your place as a creature and worship and obey him, then woe to you. It is not going to go well for you. It would be better that you were never born. Now, when you read passages like this, especially as a young Christian, this might make you afraid And there is a healthy fear of God where we would look at this and we would say, yeah, God is a fearful, awesome being. But there is also an unhealthy worry that can come out of a passage like this. You might worry, what if I'm a vessel of wrath prepared for hell? What if God isn't going to include me in righteousness and include me in his presence for all of eternity? If that's your worry... I don't think this passage is speaking of you. I I don't think the enemies of God worry about missing out on God for all of eternity. I think the enemies of God see that there's a God like this and they say, I hate him. I want nothing to do him. I'd rather perish in hell than be with such a tyrannical God who would create good and evil, who would raise up Pharaoh and then condemn Pharaoh. I think there's just a, I think there's just a, down to every fiber of their being, I think there's a hatred of God for the vessels that are destined for wrath. If you're sitting here worried like, well, do I really believe in Jesus? Am I really trusting Jesus adequately? Let me tell you something. It is not the greatness of your faith in Jesus that saves you. It is that you have faith in a great Savior, Jesus. As the man with the sick child said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, and his child was healed. Uh, You believe. Maybe you harbor some doubts. Maybe you struggle in your faith. If you have faith in Jesus, you are set for eternity. It's a measure of the Savior and his greatness, not a measure of the greatness of your faith. So if this makes you fearful, uh, I, I don't think that the very fact that you're fearful, I think that speaks to the fact that you are among God's chosen, that you are among his children. So I would not let this passage make you fearful. If it makes you hate God, be afraid. Be afraid. So God is sovereign over all, the good, the bad. He even uses people like King Cyrus who do not even know him. God's plan for Israel is unfolding in Isaiah's prophecies. In contrast to idols that mankind makes, God makes man. God is God alone. There's no other explanation for the existence of light and darkness, good and evil. God is God. God is about to work through Cyrus and call Cyrus Messiah, though though Cyrus doesn't know him. God will cause Cyrus to release Israel and to rebuild their city for them. He will pay for it without reimbursement. God has made it all, the good, the bad. And those who do not even know him, and he uses them, rejoice earth, you will be showered upon with righteousness and salvation. 
This is where things are going. Even if you're Israel, headed into Babylonian captivity, looking forward to Gentile deliverance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you, God, for Isaiah's prophecies. And Lord, we take these to be foretelling prophecies that, uh, Lord, he is naming names before Cyrus is even born. That, God, this is just further evidence that you are God, you alone, that you declare what will be. And when it happens, it's just so uncanny that people want to say all this, that they want to cry foul and say that this had to be rewritten after the fact. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would bless us as we continue to study prophecies. Help us to worship you for the God that you are. Help us to be in fear of you, but also delighting to trust you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.